The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer, if you need to use 1 John 1.9, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, your word is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It illuminates everything in our life. And as we study your word, it is not just to learn more about you, not just to learn about our salvation, but to explore all of the dimensions of life on the basis of your clear revelation, that we may think your thoughts after you and that we may have our thinking completely renovated according to the principles of your word. Now, as we study your word and as we fellowship together around the teaching of your word, we pray that uh, as we are edified that we might be responsive to the truth and that we might apply this in our lives, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, and we continue with this next cycle in the period of the judges, we have seen that Israel continues to go through this cycle of disobedience, divine discipline, and then deliverance. And as we come to this episode, the next to last cycle in the book, we're going to discover that less and less seems to be said of God. His name is mentioned just a few times, and that is significant from the framework of the author, the Holy Spirit inspired the author in such a way that that you can look at how often or where the Lord's name is mentioned in a passage, and its absence speaks volumes, because it tells us that the people are less and less concerned with God when God's name appears. One of the interesting things is, uh, in this episode and in the subsequent one with Samson, it's almost as if it's just sort of an addendum. People are just saying, oh yes, we'll uh, include God 
It's very superficial, and it shows that at the core of their thinking, they really do not understand doctrine anymore, and they're not really concerned. It's not too different from what we see in uh, our culture today. People invoke the name of God for many different reasons, and, and many times they will gather together and they will open with prayer, or they will use phrases like "as the Lord wills," but there's no real depth to what they're th- to their thinking. There's no real significance of uh, or significant doctrine undergirding their thinking. You just sort of you attach the name of God in some sort of superficial, superstitious way, as if that's going to guarantee some sort of divine blessing. And then if we uh, invoke the name of, Bible, uh, of God or attach a few Bible verses to whatever it is that we're doing, that somehow that makes it biblical, that makes it Christian, and that uh, covers up whatever other failings there might be. And that's exactly the kind of thing that's characteristic of, of paganism, because there's no... Uh, real doctrine there. That's the essence of paganism is non-biblical thinking and non-biblical activities. And this is uh, typical of Israel throughout this period. We have seen that they become more and more pagan as this time goes by. They entered into the land under Joshua. They were victorious. They trusted the God. God. They executed the faith rest of Israel. They were victorious. But then they began to compromise. And rather than annihilating all of the Canaanites, man, woman, and child, as well as all of their animals. They compromised and let many of them live. As a result of that, those same Canaanites who survived began to influence the Jews with their culture. Paul picks up that principle at the end of 1 Corinthians when he says that, that a bad company corrupts good morals. That's the principle you associate with unbelievers who are operating on human viewpoint and you can't help but be influenced by their thinking, by their attitudes. And that happens to all of us all the time. We can't avoid living in the world, but we have to be strengthened and we always have to have our guard up with doctrine as believers. Otherwise, it's very easy to be influenced by family members, by friends, by peers, by those we work with, by the media, by the um, uh, movies we see, television shows we watch. And so we have to consistently be aware of what the characteristics of paganism are that, are, that surround us, what those influences are, so that we can have our, have our guard up. Now, Israel has failed to have their guard up. They lack doctrine. By this time in their decline, they just give lip service to Yahweh. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of this uh, fourth cycle with Jephthah, starting in Judges chapter 10, verse 6. Just to review a little bit where we were before we concluded last time. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of Yahweh, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord Yahweh and did not serve him. And verse 7, the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon, And they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year for 18 years. They afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead 
in the land of the Amorites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Now, in those four verses, we set the context for the deliverance. It's interesting to note, just in terms of proportion, that we have uh, one verse here that describes Israel's sin, and then we have uh, another verse that describes God's response to their sin in divine discipline, or two verses, uh, and then we're going to have a number of, uh, starting in chapter 11, we're going to see the response of God in delivering the people. So the emphasis here is on God's deliverance, as we see in all of these episodes. And that reminds us of God's grace, because the, the more Israel deteriorates into their disobedience and into paganism, and the less obedient they are to the law, which is the basis for the divine blessing in Israel according to the Mosaic law, God continues to deal with them in grace, despite their failures, despite their flaws, despite their disobedience, despite everything that's going wrong in Israel. God continues to deal with them in grace, and that's true for all of us, that God always deals with us on the basis of grace. Grace is his policy towards mankind, which is based on the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, because Christ paid the penalty for all our sins. Sin is no longer the issue, so God's justice is now free to bless mankind because of what what Christ did on the cross. He blesses believer and unbeliever alike, and that is what we call common grace, and he specifically blesses believers. And we are going to see in the episode with Jephthah, who is no hallmark of Christian maturity at all or of spiritual maturity, and in Samson, who seems to be even worse, that these men are not spiritual giants. Now, I know they're listed in Hebrews 11 as as examples of great faith, but we have to understand that in the context of Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing the fact that these men took a stand on doctrine and executed the faith rest drill, trusting God at a crucial moment in their life. It is not a statement of their spiritual maturity. In fact, as we look at, at Judges, we will see that they're not spiritually mature. They're ignorant of doctrine, especially, uh, especially Jephthah and Samson. And despite all of that, God still blesses, God still delivers, God still rescues the nation. And so this is the subject that underlies and the theme that undergirds these next five or six chapters in Judges is the grace of God despite the continuing and increasing failure of Israel. And in that, there are a number of important lessons which we must examine. Now, we start off in verse 6, just to remind you of the context. The writer uses the word Yasaf, Asaf, in verse 6, meaning again, and it emphasizes the repetitiveness of Israel's failure. We see this in Judges 3.7, And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and Asherahs. That led eventually to the deliverance of um, by Othniel. Then in Judges 3.12 we read, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, 
And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And that led eventually to the deliverance by Ehud, the second judge. Then in Judges 4.1 we read, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And that eventually led to the deliverance by Deborah and her judgeship. Then in Judges 6.1 we read, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian. That led to the deliverance under Gideon. And now we read that for the fifth time Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. And the principle here is that they continue to go into into idolatry, they continue to reject God, and they continue to succumb to the pressure from the surrounding culture to adopt the, the popular religion of the surrounding culture. And today the popular religion is more or less sort of a secular humanism, uh, and it's in a rel- moral relativism, and so as believers we are constantly under pressure from the culture around us to adopt those ideas. And those ideas continually, continuously are reflected by practices in churches. This is true throughout history. The history of the church age is the history of how the church reflects the culture around them. And so we always have to be aware of what those cultural pressures, pressures are so we can stand guard against them. So God is going to discipline them, and we need to ask the question, why is this so, so bad? Why is this so frustrating? Why is the writer emphasizing again, again, again? First of all, it shows that Israel is not learning their lesson. Again and again and again, God disciplines them. They go out where they're under a foreign oppression, military oppression, military occupation for every, anything from three or four years to, in this case, 18 years. And ultimately, the next time it happens, in Judges 13, they will be oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years. So they come under extreme discipline, and they just don't learn the lesson. They're stubborn. It emphasizes how hard the heart of of, uh, depravity is and how committed human beings are to trying to make life work on their own terms. Continuously, the text emphasizes words like they forsook God. The Hebrew word azab means to abandon God. They just exclude him from their thinking. And this is what has happened in American history, in our culture, and in our churches, is that there is a conscious exclusion of God. Somehow God only applies to Sunday morning, Wednesday night maybe, but the rest of the week God does not have anything to say about basic principles of economics, law, politics, literature, uh, all of the other academic and practical disciplines of life, architecture, art in the Middle Ages, they understood things that God affected everything. And so they tried to have a, uh, an architecture that reflected biblical absolutes. And that was developed in the Gothic style. So that in the style of Gothic, when you see a Gothic uh, cathedral, it was built to drive your eyesight up toward God. Because everything in the architecture was designed to to bring glory to God and to focus the attention of the person coming into the building on God and on spiritual issues. So architecture was was uh, not something that was just aesthetically pleasing on some random basis of value, but they thought deeply about the underlying 
uh, assumptions of what they were doing, and they tried to let theology impact uh, their view of architecture. So what we do when we get into secularism is we think that God only applies to maybe morals or God only applies to certain religious things, and we compartmentalize God. But then when we get over into areas of science or history or literature or philosophy, then God really doesn't have have anything to do with that, and we exclude God. Well, that's the same thing that the Jews are doing. That means to abandon God. So they, they abandon God. They forget God. They conscientiously remove God from having anything to do with the day-to-day affairs of life. But when you take God out of the picture, there's always something else that goes into that vacuum, and what went into the vacuum was their worship of the fertility gods. We'll come back to that in a minute. The second reason things were so bad is they continue to abuse the grace of God. They forget God. God disciplines them. They scream out in pain and misery for God to deliver them. God delivers them, and then as soon as everything is back to normal, they go. They forget God again, and they go right back into the idolatry and living life as if God really isn't involved in the day-to-day affairs of life. So they're abusing the grace of God, which demonstrates a lack of gratitude and a lack of gratitude towards God for everything we have, from the food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the jobs we have, the cars we drive, the family, the friends, everything that we have comes from the Lord. When we don't have gratitude and we don't recognize that, then it's very easy to abuse the grace of God and to take it for granted. And what happens then eventually is that God in His grace is going to lower the boom in divine discipline, which is what is happening in the life of Israel. third reason this is so bad is that by continuing to be involved with the fertility religions of the ancient world, the Jews were destroying their own culture. They, it was a self-destructive behavior that was destroying their own culture, their own society. It was wiping out the freedoms that they were given by God under the Mosaic Law. And ultimately, it would destroy them as a nation. And God eventually took them out under the fifth cycle and scattered them in order to teach them that lesson. This explains why these things were so bad. Now, as we look at, the, at verse 6, we're told that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and that is defined specifically as serving the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Serving the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And those are in the plural because you had various manifestations of these two, two gods, uh, or these two idols, these two, this god and goddess. Baal is the male god, Ashtaroth, or the plural is the, the female goddess, Manifested in all the different cultures. They had different names, but you had all of these showing up in different, in different religions. For example, in, uh, when you go back and you study history, now you won't get this, and you never got this when you were studying Western civilization or world history when you were in, in uh, high school or college. Because history, as a matter of fact, I, I discovered in my education that more evolutionary theory was taught in the social sciences 
than in the science classroom. Now you'll have you'll have it in historical geology and biology. I'm not saying it's not there, but when you get into social sciences, into sociology, into psychology, and into history, especially if you're dealing with anything in terms of ancient history, it's all taught within an evolutionary framework. You go back and you study, or you go to any of the national parks out west where there was especially a, a, an influence from the Indians, then they always go back and have some evolutionary framework for all the ancient Indian people, tribes that moved through the area. And you always have to be on guard for that because it's much more subtle. When you're in science class, you're sitting in biology and they're talking about origins, you're ready and you're prepared for evolution. But you sit down and you read uh, histories. You start off, there are certain authors that, that are very popular that if you pick up their works, they start off in you know, 50,000 B.C. and go through all the geologic ages and then they go through the various cave people and Neanderthals until they finally get up into some sort of... Uh, modern history. So even in reading fiction, it's very easy to be assaulted again and again and again with evolutionary presuppositions. But the reality is that religion did not evolve from a polytheistic system to a monotheistic system. See, that's the way it's normally presented in in the classroom and modern thinking has applied the modern man has applied the the theory of evolution to the development of religion and so according to uh, modern views of the development of religion man starts off with many gods polytheism and gradually as man became more and more sophisticated as time went by eventually they came to the idea of only one God and having a monotheistic religion. And usually the first monotheist they go to is uh, a pharaoh by the name of Akhenaten, who was uh, ruled in about the 11th or 12th century B.C., which is much after Moses. So they would, but, but then they late date Moses as well. So they see this development taking place. Yet back in the 1920s, a Jesuit priest, a French Jesuit priest by the name of Schmidt, did a work. It was an eight-volume work in the original French where he went through. It was his life's work, and he studied every ancient civilization. He went to Polynesia. He went to India. He went to Africa. He went all over the world and he studied all the primitive societies and what he discovered was every primitive society, every religion and every primitive society started with a monotheism. He demonstrates in this seven-volume work that is ignored by modern scholarship, it was uh, abridged and translated to one volume in English, it, he demonstrates that the whole evolutionary concept is applied to religion is completely false and has no basis in history or in fact. And what happened is uh, that he discovered is every one of these starts off with one God who usually becomes distanced in their thinking. He's, he becomes depersonalized and usually he's associated with a sky God or a the God of uh, or the God who is heaven. 
and then he, he disappears. For example, if you look at that Greek or Roman mythology, the chief god in the, in the pantheon that comes along is, is Zeus or Jupiter. But he's, sec- he's really secondary. He comes late on the scene. Uh, he is a descendant of the original god who is either Saturn or Uranus who is the sky god, but he just sort of disappears and nobody ever knows anything about him. He becomes impersonal. He's the god of the heavens, god of the sky, whatever. And the same kind of parallel happens in your Canaanite religions where the the high god is El, El for God, and he just sort of disappears into the background and is replaced by this young upstart god by the name of Baal. And you see this parallel. They got from, from culture to culture, the name changes. But you see this same kind of thing in every culture throughout the uh, ancient world and throughout the world. All primitive cultures started off this way, and they moved from one god, and then they began to develop other gods. And the more they distanced themselves in time from the Tower of Babel and the scattering of the nations at that time the more they degenerated into polytheism. So polytheism is really the degeneration of man as a result of his rejection of God and rebellion against God, which started with the Tower of Babel. Now, what happened in these various religions is that in primitive societies, the primary issue in life was life support. And in primitive societies where they were uh, hunters or gatherers or whether when they began to or when they developed uh, various agricultural methods, the uh, Egyptians had some tremendous systems of agriculture. That, too, goes from a complex system to a deterioration. You never have people starting off as hunters or gatherers and then going up the scale. It's always a deterioration. Modern man reverses everything because he's... He's committed to evolution. So their, their primary issues in life, though, are agricultural, and that means they need to have certain types of weather. They need to have rain at the right times. They need to have, for example, in Egypt, there needed to be the annual the floods of the Nile, which provided the cycle so that it, it, as it flooded, it put, put new soil out and irrigated the crops. You needed to have rain. Uh, in Israel, you needed to have the spring rains and the fall rains. The weather is very important, as well as uh, soil productivity, soil conditions, and all of this to, to in order to guarantee consistent crops. And, of course, the ultimate goal here is to achieve some sort of economic security in life. And your position and prestige was usually determined by how secure you were in terms of your, con- your, your, your own personal finances and wealth. So all of this has to de- also relates to man's meaning and purpose in life. So everything then, their, their psychological well-being, their position in society, their own personal health, everything is going to be tied to the weather and soil conditions and agricultural prosperity. So the major issue in life then becomes fertility. You want to have a fertile soil in order to have prosperity. So they developed these gods, and throughout the world, as th- these systems developed, these, these uh, various religious systems developed, 
you would come along and have the, the sky god would sort of disappear into relative obscurity, and he's either overthrown or replaced by a young male god and his consort, lover, wife, girlfriend, however you want to put it, who's the female goddess. And there is uh, intense sexual overtones to their relationship. And because in, in their development of paganism, what happens on the earth is a reflection of what happens in the heavens. They got the idea that the fertility and the, the sexual uh, activity between the gods had something to do with fertility on the earth. And so then they developed these religious practices to try to manipulate and encourage the, the gods to be fertile so they would develop various sexual rituals in, in temples and in high places and up in the groves, of, um, in these sacred groves where they would engage in all sorts, all manners of sexual activity in order to try to encourage the male and female god gods to um, engage in sexual activity so that they would have fertility. And so all this are called nature religions, fertility religions, the uh, Palacult, Palacult, and all of that was represented by all the nations surrounding, um, surrounding Israel. So when we read this verse in Judges chapter 10, 6, and we talk about the, the Baals and the Asherahs is a, a summary of all the fertility religions that surrounded Israel. The gods of Syria were that way. The gods of Sidon, yeah, the Phoenicians were that way. The gods of Moab were that way. The gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines were all deeply immersed in fertility religions. Now, let's see what God has to say about what ultimately underlies these fertility religions. Hold your place here in Judges 10 and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 16 and 17. Let's start at verse 15. This, this, the context here is this is the a song that Moses composed right before his death, and it relates to the history of Israel and sort of his commentary based on divine viewpoint of what goes on in Israel. Verse 15, he talks about Jeshurun, grew fat and kicked. Now, Jeshurun is a name that is applied to Israel when they were spiritually mature. It was a second name for Israel that applied to them as spiritually mature. And it talks about growing fat and kick. That indicates their prosperity. When they were obedient to God, they, they were mature. They had all an abundance of blessings. And then they began to reject God. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. And then he forsook God who made him. That is, they abandoned the Creator God. This is the same pattern. The, the ultimate God of the universe, the creator God who was involved in history, they abandoned him, you abandoned God who made him, and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. That is, they completely rejected God. They not only rejected God, but they scorned God. He's not really involved. They began to ridicule God. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. That means that they, having rejected the God who delivered them, 
from uh, Egypt, they began to go after the foreign gods of the surrounding nations. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. Well, you say, well, wait a minute. They were, they were sacrificing to idols. These were just statues made out of stone and made out of, uh, out of wood. No, they weren't. They were the, the, uh, what, under, what undergirded the entire uh, phallic system was demonism. And all of this was the real problem is that they were aligning themselves with, with the demonic. And this brings to our attention the fact that all of this wasn't just something that happened in isolation in history, but is part of the angelic conflict. That Satan was out to destroy the, the Jews because they were God's chosen people. They had a particular mission as the missionary uh, ethnic group that God was going to use through whom God would bring the Messiah. And so if Satan could destroy the Jews, then he would destroy the line of the Messiah. He would render ineffective all of the promises and prophecies that God had made in the Old Testament. And so there is a a demonic aspect to false religion. All false religions ultimately have their origin in Satan and in the demonic. So the divine viewpoint on worship of idols is not that it's just worshiping inanimate stone, but that ultimately it is part of demonic influence and doctrines of demons. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. Now, that is the commentary of what happens in the period of the judges. They are basically turning away from God and turning to demons. Now, we read in Psalm 96.5 another comment on this where the writer of the psalm says, For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. So there's this contrast between the Creator God and the demons. And then Paul adds his own insight, own additional comment on idolatry and doctrines of demons in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. And there Paul says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be sharers or participators with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. These are opposites. And what had happened in Israel is they had succumbed to, they were succumbing to demonism. Whenever you get away from God and the truth of the scriptures, you're getting involved in doctrines of demons. Now this seems harsh to a lot of people, but we have to keep this in mind because a lot of human viewpoints sounds good and, well, it can't be really all that hard. And so we are harsh and, it, and we just tend to try to diminish its, its, the seriousness of involvement with human viewpoint and how horrible it is. Scripture says that there's really only two ways of looking at things. Now, modern man says if you do this, then you're just, you're just too rigid and you just see everything in black and white. Well, that's a, rea- a reaction to God. Divine viewpoint is the way that God looks at everything. And God has designed every aspect of his creation to function together in one systematic, interrelated whole. And everything adheres together. 
And that's what we mean by divine viewpoint. It is the one singular viewpoint that is expressed in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In contrast, there are a multitude of different human viewpoint systems, but they all have one thing in common, and that is they are demonic. Hold your place. Continue to hold your place in Judges 10. We're just moving around looking at different passages to demonstrate this before we come back to analyzing the problem. In uh, James chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have, that's the contrast, if you have bitter envy or bitter jealousy and self-seeking, if you're self-absorbed, operating on arrogance, and see all human viewpoint operates on arrogance. That was the fundamental sin of Satan when he uttered his five I wills in Isaiah chapter 14. If you have bitter jealousy and self-absorbed arrogance in your hearts and your thinking, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, that is the wisdom of the world. All human viewpoint thinking is classified as the wisdom of the world. The Bible also uses the word cosmos to refer to it, which is cosmic thinking. So it's human viewpoint thinking, cosmic thinking. And here in verse 15 we read, This wisdom does not descend from above, it does not come down from above, but is, and look at his three adjectives, it is earthly, it is natural, and it is demonic. So there James classifies all human viewpoint thinking as demonic. Now we have to keep that in mind because too e- it's too easy for us to think that, well, there, there's some area of neutrality out there and some of these are good ideas and they seem to work because we operate on pragmatism. But pragmatism is just another category of cosmic thinking and it too is demonic. And so the issue is always this battle between cosmic thinking and divine viewpoint and sometimes God has to get the two by four out to hit us between the ears to get our attention so we'll start paying attention to things. And that's exactly what's going on in Judges. After these four initial four cycles, Israel continues to just abuse God's grace. And God is going to really lower the boom on them at this point to get their attention and just as a preview of coming attractions, doesn't work. So if we look at verse 6, And then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served, that it, and in effect they enslaved themselves to the fertility religions, the phallic cult of the Baals and the Asherahs, the gods of Syria, gods of Sidon, gods of Moab, gods of the people of Ammon, and gods of the Philistines. These are all the nations that surrounded them. And they forsook the Lord, that is, they abandoned him, And they did not serve him. You either serve God or you serve something else. There are no alternatives. You're not in a non-serving position. And the word serve is also the same word for slave and brings in the whole idea that if you're not serving God, then you're a slave to your sin nature. You think you're free, but you're really a slave, a slave in your soul. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Last time I looked at that, and we went over the fact that that is called an anthropopathism. It's a figure of speech, and there's several of these in this, in this passage. And if they're not recognized as anthropopathisms, 
then you get into some extremely dangerous theology. You get When you look at some passages, for example, in, Je- in Genesis chapter 6, where after the angelic infiltration, the demonic infiltration of the human race with the sons of God taking women, human wives, in order to destroy the genetic pool of humanity, uh, God... It says in the King James, God repented himself. And it's a figure of speech. It doesn't mean that God was sorry or God uh, changed his mind. That's a figure of speech. It's using a human way, a human expression, a human emotion in order to express the plans, purposes of God in a way that we can understand. And so often what happens is people want to take those things literally. Well, if God literally repented and was sorry that he made man, then God must have been surprised that that happened. God was surprised that that happened, and then God really didn't know that it was going to happen. So God must really not be omniscient. See, that's the line of reasoning, and that's be- that line of reasoning is becoming uh, more and more prevalent today. It's a The technical term for it now is called open theism, and the idea is that God is totally open to the future. He really doesn't know any more about the future or any, with any greater certainty than you or I do. And this is having an impact in various evangelical seminaries that in the past have been strongholds of uh, biblical orthodoxy and sound doctrine. And in fact, this next fall, there's going to be a major vote at the Evangelical Theological Society, which is a collection of, of uh, loosely based conservative scholars. I use the term very loosely because the one thing that every member has to, has to affirm is that the Bible is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. They, it includes Arminians, it includes Calvinists, it includes people who don't believe in eternal security, those who do, dispensationalists, non-dispensationalists. It's a broad spectrum. And most of the uh, scholars, academics, seminary professors, a number of pastors who are members, uh, are, 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 are members of that organization. And they put out a journal, and they have, and it's usually fairly informative, but if you want to know the trends, you always go to ETS. And this year there's going to be a vote because a number of members of ETS have now bought into open theism. And so it's going to be very interesting because uh, if they... If they vote and the executive committee at ETS has authored a statement that makes open theism uh, inconsistent with their doctrinal statement and heresy, and yet I know of a couple, of two or three professors at some fairly well-known evangelical seminaries, and the, those seminaries do not have faculty that are taking a stand. And if ETS, which is much broader than this doctrinal statement of those seminaries, if ETS takes a stand that open theism is heresy, it's going to put two or three seminaries in extremely awkward positions. So it's just going to be interesting to see what happens next, uh, uh, next November at the ETS conference. Anyway, that's the problem, is that, that people don't understand anthropopathisms. And many of these anthropopathisms are in turn based upon anthropomorphic statements in the, in the original language. Now, anthropomorphism is a statement where 
a physical human form, like the eyes of God, the nose of God, the finger of God. Those are anthropomorphisms. Using a human feature, physical feature, and attributing it to, which God doesn't possess, but attributing it to God for the purpose of being able to express something about the plans, purposes, and policies of God. So when you have a phrase like the anger of God, literally in the Hebrew it says his nose burned. Well, that tells you right away it's not a literal expression. It's anthropomorphic. God doesn't have a nose. So the issue then becomes, well, how literal or how figurative is it? And it's an expression, wrath of God, the anger of God towards man is just an expression of God's punitive judicial decisions towards man. And it indicates the seriousness of it. The emphasis here is on the action of God's justice. No one wants a judge who operates on emotion. When you go into a courtroom, you want a judge who is objective, impartial, and unemotional. That he's going to weigh and evaluate all the evidence, and he's going to make a decision based on objectivity. But emotion and objectivity are mutually exclusive. You can't be objective and emotional at the same time. So to, to say that this expresses emotion... And that the term anger of the Lord, wrath of the Lord, expresses the fact that God is emotional means that all of God's discipline towards man throughout the scriptures is based on emotion. And nobody would, would want that. So it's clear from a number of lines of reasoning that these phrases must be anthropopathic. And they're merely emphasizing the intensity and the extremity and the harshness of the divine penalty for disobedience and sin. So the wrath of God was hot against Israel, and he sold them in the hands of the Philistines and the hands of Ammon. And then we read in verse uh, 8, From that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years, 18 years before they finally cry out. That tells us something about how stubborn Man is. We don't want to admit that these problems are our fault because we've made bad decisions, sinful decisions from a position of weakness. We don't want to admit that the reason we can't quite make life work is because we've rejected God. That negative volition on our part is the real problem. We keep having problems. We keep saying, well, it just must be something I'm not doing right. And so we, we, we have this tremendous uh, ability to rationalize our behavior and say, it really isn't my bad decisions that's causing all the problems in my life. It must be somebody else. It must be something else. I just wasn't born at the right time. It's just the wrong circumstances, but it really isn't my fault. Some people are just so stubborn in their arrogant attempt to make life work apart from God that they always seem to justify their behavior and rationalize away the trauma in their life. Somehow it's always somebody else's fault or the fault of something else. Arrogance always blinds us to our own failures and our own flaws. But finally things came to a point of intensity in Israel that they could no longer avoid it, so they cried out to God. Sa'ak is a scream or cry, indicating the intensity of their misery in verse 10. And the children of Israel cried out or screamed out to the Lord, saying... Now, we've seen this in every other instance where they have cried out to the Lord, but this is the first time we've given the content of the cry. We have sinned against you. So they're admitting their sin. We have sinned against you. This is a classic case of confession 
and forgiveness. We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. Notice, they don't say, God, we're sorry for our sin. They admit and state exactly what the sin is. They've abandoned God. They've served the fertility gods. But notice what God says in verse 11. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, now he's going to remind them of his grace historically in their lives and how God has continuously delivered them. And the underlying, to use an anthropopathic statement, the underlying thing here is God is a little short-tempered with them. In fact, that's what the sense of the idiom is at the end of the section. He's a little short-tempered with them because again and again and again the same thing has happened. Now, I want to make a point here. When I talk about 1 John 1, 9, I've always made the point that when we confess our sins, God's always going to do the same thing. He's always going to forgive us. I want you to notice there's no mention of the word forgiveness anywhere in the passage. This isn't a passage that's talking about forgiveness. It's a passage that's talking about the consequences of sin and divine discipline. And those are two separate things. And people in our culture do not understand the difference between forgiveness and consequences. We have somebody who's a president. We have somebody who's a celebrity commit some crime. And, and so because they're so well-loved by everybody or so popular, people go around saying, well, I forgive them. Why are you persecuting them? Why do you want to put them in jail? Why do you want to take them out of office? Whatever it might be. And what they've done is they've confused legal consequences with forgiveness. You can forgive somebody, but they still have to suffer the consequences. Over and over again in Scripture, God forgives people, but they still have to suffer certain consequences. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes God removes those consequences in His grace, but not always. So the issue here is not of forgiveness. God is not saying, well, you've you've confessed this sin now. 15,000 times, and I'm just fed up with it, so I'm not going to forgive you this next time. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that they're just like so many believers. They just bounce in and out of fellowship. They confess the sin, get in fellowship, commit the same sin again and again and again. And God's saying, look, the point is you have to stop committing the sin. You have to start learning to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. You have to abide in Christ, which means to stay in fellowship so you can grow as a believer. And if you haven't figured that out by now, then maybe I have to take out a couple of two-by-fours and just sit on your shoulders and beat you over the head for a while before I get your attention. So that's where what God is basically saying to them in verse 11. He rehearses his historical grace, which shows the importance of history. History is the working of God in time. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, that goes back to the Exodus, and from the Amorites, that is those who uh, invaded and attacked them when they were in the wilderness, from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, and that has to do with earlier conquests when they were attacking Israel in the land, also the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites, which is a textual problem there. It's translated Maonites, but it probably is Midianites, and there was a textual corruption there because no... No one knows what, who, who or what the Mayanites were, so it was probably a textual corruption at that point. And, of course, it was the Midianites and the Amalekites who had uh, allied themselves together and uh, invaded the nation before Gideon delivered them. 
So there's a rehearsal of all the ways in the past that God had delivered the nation. So when all of these peoples oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. I've done it again and again and again. But you don't get the point. You're still disobedient. Every time I deliver you, you immediately forget about it. You're ungrateful, and you go right back to worshiping the false gods. You continue to commit the same sins again and again and again, and you're just abusing my grace. Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will, I'll deliver you no more. They're forgiven. See, forgiveness occurred. But God says, I'm not going to reduce the consequences. I'm not going to relax the divine discipline because you haven't learned the lesson yet. See, there's three things that can happen when we get involved in sin. God lowers the boom on us in divine discipline. First of all, he can leave the discipline at the same intensity. Secondly, he can relax its intensity. And third, he can take it away. But that's up to God. But once we're back in fellowship, once we confess our sins, and here's a circle describing walking with Christ, being in fellowship, in New Testament's filled with the Spirit, out here's carnality. Once we confess our sins, and we're back in fellowship, out here it's divine discipline, and it is... Suffering for cursing. Suffering for discipline. But once we get back in fellowship, the suffering may continue, but now, because we can apply doctrine and apply the problem-solving devices, apply the stress busters, then that suffering can be turned into blessing because now we can use our spiritual resources in order to handle the suffering, and it becomes a way of increasing our momentum in spiritual growth. But if we don't stay in fellowship, if we, if we continue in that suffering and we become bitter, angry towards God because we're still going through it, He didn't take it away, then we're just back out of fellowship operating on bitterness, anger, hostility towards God, and that can lead to a hardened heart and scar tissue on the soul. And that's exactly what happens, happened to Israel in the Old Testament. So God reminds them of how he has delivered them. And then in verse 14, in a, in a statement that is loaded with sarcasm. You know, God is, God is very sarcastic at times. He says, you haven't listened to me. I'm not, not only am I not going to deliver you, but, but you really need to spend a little more time realizing the futility of idolatry. So why don't you go cry out to those false gods just some more? You, you just haven't really pushed it to the limit yet. So go back to those gods which you had chosen and let them deliver you. God is pushing them to show them the inability of their own thinking. He is uh, sarcastic here, but in the same way he is showing that he's pointing out to them that their, the way of their thinking, that their, their whole religious system ultimately doesn't work. But this brings us to the whole question of the relationship of confession, forgiveness, and divine discipline. I've already pointed out the summary, and that is that God can either remove the discipline, He can reduce its intensity, or it can continue at the same intensity. And I want to look at a couple of examples in Scripture. First of all, let's look at the example of David's sin in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12. This is David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the consequent cover-up where he conspired to have her husband Uriah murdered because after he uh, took Bathsheba, and there's, it's, it's not rape, but it almost has that overtone. He's certainly in a position of authority. She is not. He's known her from all her life. She is the daughter of one of his most trusted advisors. And so he uses his position to uh, in, influence her in, a, in an extremely wrong way. And one interesting thing is the Scripture never tells us that she loved him. Never tells us that she had a love for him. But he goes and he seduces her and they have, she becomes pregnant and then in order to cover it up because her husband's away at battle where David should have been, uh, he has her husband killed. Now that's the, basically what's covered in Second Samuel chapter 11. Then in Second Samuel 12, God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David with his sin because, you see, David hasn't confessed his sin. David is still out of fellowship, and David is still operating on arrogance. So Nathan presents a parable, starting in verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, came to him and said to him, There are two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. So the, the wealthy man has everything. That represents David. The poor man only has one little ewe lamb, and that represents Uriah. And he says, um, so the rich man came along and stole the poor man's lamb. And that is the thrust of the, of the analogy. And David became self-righteously indignant over that and said, well, the man should be punished. And notice what he said in verse, what the punishment should be in verse 6. He shall restore fourfold for the lamb. David just announced his own punishment. For a fourfold discipline. Now, Nathan then says, well, he makes the application in verse 7, informs David that you are the man and that this is the punishment that God has, has given you. In verses 9 and 10, David's discipline is announced. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. This is part of the punishment. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And that's God. This is God's message given to David. You have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So in verse 13, David confesses his sin. But the punishment has been announced. And there's going to be a fourfold punishment on David for his sin. First of all, the child that was conceived is going to be born, but the child is going to die in infancy. That's in 2 Samuel 12, verses 14 through 15. The second stage, remember there's a fourfold punishment because David said the man should pay fourfold. Secondly, Amnon, David's son, rapes 
David's daughter Tamar. So there's incest in the family, something that would just tear apart the heart of a parent. His son rapes the daughter, and then his favorite son Absalom, this is the third stage of the discipline, his third son Absalom murders Amnon in revenge for what Amnon had done to his sister Tamar. So this is the kind of stuff that would have been making the front page of the National Enquirer. This is just great, uh, great, tremendous drama, but the heartache and the misery that it brought David is just unimaginable to see his family fragment like this. And then Absalom was his favorite son and the one he loved the most, and Absalom turned against him and led a revolt against David. David had to flee out of Jerusalem with all of his men, and eventually in that revolt, Absalom was killed. And that just brought more pain and misery to David. Now, David was in fellowship when he went through all of that suffering. When David confessed his sin, God did not diminish the consequences. God did not remove the consequences. God did not lessen the intensity of those consequences to his sin. Their sin brings consequences. Too often we get the idea that because of grace and forgiveness, that somehow that eradicates the consequences. David experienced God's grace to the fullest. That's expressed in, in some of his psalms where he confesses the sin. In Psalm 51 and in Psalm 38, we don't have time to look at those, but you should write that down and take a look at them later on. It shows the misery that David went through when he was out of fellowship. He was depressed. He was discouraged. Not only was he going through external, physical, negative consequences, but also emotional trauma. And yet, when he had forgiveness, that emotional trauma disappeared. The joy of his salvation was restored to him so that he had a positive mental attitude based on doctrine. And because he had that positive mental attitude based on doctrine, and because he now could apply doctrine to the situation using the faith thrust drill, promises that God gave him, he was able to endure this incredible suffering. And that, that endurance of the suffering in fellowship and on the basis of doctrine enabled him to mature spiritually. But he had to go through that suffering. It was self-induced misery and because of his disobedience to God and because of his arrogance towards Bathsheba and towards her husband. And everybody seems to want to focus on the adultery. It's not just the it's the 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 total scene of his being the king, his abuse of his authority towards Bathsheba, his using his position to conspire and to murder Uriah. I mean, this is a complex web of sins that revealed the uh, profound carnality in David's life before any of it ever started, and he just allowed it to run unrestrained. So there is still a fourfold punishment. It is not reduced or diminished, but because of God's grace in his word, David is able to endure the discipline. And then there's the case of Hezekiah. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 29. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 29. This takes place during the time of the Assyrian invasion when the northern kingdom has already gone out under divine discipline and now the Assyrian under Sennacherib is outside the gates of Jerusalem, basically, and has sent a warning message to 
Hezekiah that God is not going to help him. God is not going to provide any sort of relief for him. And what Hezekiah does, because Hezekiah has been in the same sort of situation that, that, uh, in that he has been disobedient to God and he's been relying upon other ways to solve his problem. He's been relying on alliances with other nations. And so Hezekiah goes before the Lord, he confesses his sin, and he appeals to God to deliver them. And then we get the answer in... Um, starting in verse 29, and that is that God is going to deliver the nation and uh, the Assyrian will not destroy Jerusalem. Verse 29, This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and in the second year which springs from the same, also in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. In other words, you're going to survive and it's going to continue. And the remnants who have escaped the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. Uh, By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. So that discipline is taken away. But the discipline on the southern kingdom isn't removed completely. And there's another episode in the next chapter, chapter 20, where Berodach, I referred to this Wednesday night in our study of Daniel, where Berodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent some envoys to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, in his arrogance, see, he never really solved the problem of arrogance. So in his arrogance, he showed off all the treasures they had in the temple. And then afterwards, Isaiah came to him in verse 14. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah told them. And then in verse 16, we get the consequences. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. And says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you. That would be Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So the point is that Hezekiah's discipline, the discipline on it, on the southern kingdom of Judah, was diminished. Uh, the Assyrians left. The Assyrians did not take them out under divine discipline, but it was simply postponed. And eventually they did go out under divine discipline at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So don't, make, don't get confused and think that just because there's grace and forgiveness that somehow that absolves us of consequences. And God wants to drive this home to the Jews. So we read in verse 12 that they got the point. Back in Judges chapter 10, excuse me, verse 15. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Now, remember, what's the theme of the book? The theme of the book is they wanted everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So now they're saying, God, do what's right in your eyes. Well, God has been doing what's right in his eyes. He's been judging them. He's been sending foreign powers to oppress them according to what he promised in Deuteronomy. So do, what, do to us what seems best to you. Only deliver us this day. Notice, they're dictating to God. They want to manipulate God. Do what, whatever seems best to you, but deliver us. You know, do whatever you think is right, but do what we want you to do. See, they still haven't learned the point that it's God's plan, not their plan, 
It's God's agenda, not their agenda. It's God's purposes, not their purposes. And so, but God nevertheless in grace deals with them. They do respond. They do change. Notice, this is what they should be do, have been doing all along. What should go along with confession is not committing the same sin again five minutes later, but dealing with the sin. So they do. They put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord. That means they stayed in fellowship. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And that, once again, is another anthropopathic statement. Because God doesn't have a soul. It is just an idiom in Israel for the fact that, that God could no longer endure their misery, so now God is going to uh, deliver them in grace. And then verse 17, it comes to a climax where the Ammonite army comes, and they have to make a decision because they don't have anyone who can lead them. And that sets the context for the next chapter when God raises up the next judge, who is Jephthah. And we will look at him and his remarkable character and story next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning and the lessons we have learned, how important it is to, to not only confess our sins, but to remain in fellowship, to deal with the sin, not to abuse and take advantage of your grace. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is intimately involved in our lives and that your desire is to bring us to spiritual maturity, and that is the purpose of discipline, that it is because you love us that you discipline us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now would be the time that they would make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He died on the cross for the sins of every human being, and every single sin was paid for on the cross, so that the issue now is faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says salvation is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is only by faith in Him that we have eternal salvation, a free gift, that can never be taken away. So all you have to do right now, right where you sit, is put your faith alone in Christ alone, and you can have that eternal free gift of salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us remember the things we studied and be challenged by them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.